On this episode of the NASO Video and Podcast, we're joined by doctoral candidate Roger Bailey of the University of Maryland. We head for the coast of Liberia as he talks about the free republic like our own, the U.S. Navy and the colonization movement in public discourse, 1890 to 1860. North American Society for Oceanic History was created by maritime scholars who met in 1971 at the University of Maine. They recognized that in North America there was no forum for maritime history or society devoted to the study and promotion of maritime history. The aim of the original group of organizers was to create a diverse organization based initially on Canadian and American membership, which would gain the interest of others. Now there are members worldwide. And it is this diversity of membership that continues to make NASO a truly unique organization. 2020 marked the first year in recent memory that NASA was unable to meet, and therefore we bring historians, archaeologists, and students who are scheduled to present. Welcome to the North American Society for Oceanic History video podcast. I'm your host, Sal Mercagliano. The goal of the NASO podcast is to bring you some of the best historians, professionals, and up-and-comers in the field of maritime history. Today we're heading to Maryland and being joined by Roger Bailey. He's a graduate student at the University of Maryland and this year's winner of the Clark G. Reynolds Prize by NASO. This award is for the best paper by a graduate student to be presented at the annual conference. Clark Reynolds was the first executive officer of NATO. Mr. Bailey's paper is Free Republic, like our, uh, like our own, the U.S. Navy and the Colonization Movement in Public Discourse, 1819 to 1860. Welcome, Roger, to the NASO Video and Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you on here. As I was uh, mentioned to you before, one of the reasons for us to kicking off the uh, video and the podcast is because of you. Uh, you uh, are the winner of this year's Clark Reynolds Prize. Uh, we hated for the concept for a graduate student to win a prize and not have an opportunity to present their paper. We know how much grad students live for that. And, <laughs> and uh, we were able to, very kindly, uh, Claude Berbe over at Preble Hall podcast. Uh, Claude is a Renaissance man of epic proportions. Uh, he is the director over at the U.S. Naval Academy Museum, hosted you on there. I did, matter of fact, it was your second time on there. Uh, so we were very grateful for, for doing that. But then we thought, well, why not do that ourselves? And so thanks to you and, and Heather Bailey, who, who uh, was the honorable mention for this year, we have kicked off this year's Wait. podcast to give you all an opportunity. Uh, excuse me, Heather Haley. Uh, <laughs> have the opportunity to, uh, to uh, uh, have the opportunity to present at this. So I thought, I thought a second about Clark Reynolds uh, because uh, not many people know him. I mentioned at the outset that he is the first executive officer for NASO. A prolific writer. I, I was a big fan of Clark Reynolds. As a matter of fact, I, one of my first jobs at NASO was to do the Clark Reynolds Prize. And uh, one of my favorite books he ever written, and I actually brought him up here today, is, is this one here, Fast Carriers, The Forging of an Air Navy. Uh, I used to love this in grad school. I'm a big Navy fan, and so that, that was my favorite thing. But the thing that I think uh, that Clark Reynolds is probably most famous for are this, The Command of the Sea Book and his Navies in History book, where he really, for me, uh, coined the phrase thassilocracy, uh, but more importantly, really talked about the importance of, of, of naval and commercial shipping together. And I think that, that relates very well to the topic that you have here. So one of the things I, I, I want to ask you first is why this topic? And when a grad student chooses a topic, it's, it's a topic they, they tend to love. Uh, and if not, they tend to hate it after a while. So I was wondering about how you came about choosing your topic. 
Well, so this is part of my larger dissertation topic, which is looking at uh, beliefs about race and slavery and uh, sectional difference between the North and the South in the Naval Officer Corps uh, leading up to the Civil War. Um, and, and actually that was inspired by uh, Matthew Morey, who you just had your, uh, you know, just had a panel on recently. Um, and his expedition to explore the Amazon and uh, potentially start American slave colonies in the Amazon River Valley. And uh, so I, I like had stumbled across that and it was like, this is really crazy. Are other officers using their agency and autonomy that they have, um, you know, when they're on, you know, on station, uh, you know, abroad from the United States? Uh, are they using their power to do similar things to sort of advance or or influence this issue of slavery um, in the U.S.? And uh, so I, I, I'm looking at other exploring expeditions. I'm looking at naval suppression of uh, pro-slavery military expeditions invading Latin American countries, looking at um, the Mexican-American War, uh, the suppression of the transatlantic slave trade, and then finally at uh, colonization in Liberia. I, I think you, you mentioned a couple of things, and, and I was really taken by kind of a, a dual issue that's taking place in your study of what's going on in the United States at this time. And, and what I thought was really interesting is you mentioned more. So you're t here's this element that are, that are exploring and talking about expanding slavery into the Americas, Central and South America. Well, at the same time, you have this relocation program that's basically the American Colonization Society that, that is looking to relocate ex-slaves, freemen out of the United States back over to Africa. And, and I thought that's just an interesting parallel going on at the same time. I, I mean, the Navy's involved in both of these too. So you, you have that element involved of it. And then the other element I want to get into in a little bit later is, is I, I was really taken when I, when I heard your talk that you had with Claude, for example, I was really taken by the image of, of relocating these, these, these former slaves and freemen almost sounded to me like the trail of tears in some ways and the, the concept of reservations that was going on. And, and so I want to kind of build on this a little bit each, in each moment. So let's talk about this American Colonization Society first. Uh, what's the movement going on and what are the, what's their genesis? So yeah, they start uh, in the uh, late 18 teens and they're born out of a concern that slavery is, I mean, so there's, there's different factions in it, but, but basically their idea is that African-Americans in the United States um, should be sent to West Africa to create colonies. And there's two major wings in this movement. It's mostly white. Um, and there's a Northern, more anti-slavery wing that wants to do this for the benefit of the uh, the African Americans themselves, they believe that uh, that they're just never going to have a fair shake in a white dominated country. That there will be perpetual racism, always holding African Americans back, and that they can achieve true equality only by going and creating their own country where they won't have to contend with this. And like the American colonists that came from Europe, they'll be able to build their own republic as as full citizens and and assume you know leadership. And, and forge their own nation that way. Um, and, uh, and as a side effect, they, they see this as a way to take uh, white, you know, white American uh, culture and uh, American commerce and Christianity 
uh, into Africa and, and create a foothold that would expand those, those values there and, and help create trade with the US and things like that. Um, so that, that's the, the sort of northern and more anti-slavery wing. And, and I think that by doing this too, um, it will make it easier to emancipate, uh, emancipate slaves because the people who are emancipating them won't have to like live with them after the fact. Um, and, and so they think in that way it might speed up the, uh, the, the dissolution of slavery. Uh, in the South though, there are a lot of colonizationists who think that this is good because it preserves slavery or, or the stability of slavery. They see freed African-Americans as a source of instability. And especially after, uh, um, after Denmark Vesey's uh, planned uprising in South Carolina, they get concerned that freed African-Americans are gonna spread abolitionist ideas. They're gonna help runaways and fugitives. Um, they're going to potentially lead slave uprisings and they need to get them out of the South and they start passing laws that make it, uh, you know, hard for, for freed people of color to stay in the state, um, or freed, freed African-Americans specifically to stay in the state, um, and, and other states don't allow them to migrate into them. And for a lot of them, the only option left available is, is a trip to Liberia. And, and just to backtrack a little bit, I, I think you're right. I, I think the Haitian Revolution in particular is always haunting everyone in the back of their head in, in what happened in there, something that Americans like to suppress, that image of, of, of Haiti. But basically, you're talking about freed slaves really being relocated, not so much you know liberating slaves and moving. That seems to be the, the, the genesis and core of that movement that, that is going on. And then the selection of Liberia is always interesting to me because the British are doing very something similar over in Sierra Leone with Freetown, for example, and, and, and creating their element there. So I was wondering if you can expand a little bit on that too. Yeah. So, so this idea comes uh, from, from Sierra Leone. Um, it's, it's designed to be um, more managed by the colonizationists them, themselves and, and with African-Americans playing a larger role in it. And so they, they try to differentiate themselves as as being sort of more democratic than Freetown, and and they they succeed a little bit in that they have like a, a core of of black American colonizationists that back this and take leadership roles in the in the colonies, um, <clears throat> but it's it's much more decentralized also. So you have um, the map that you have up right now shows the different several different colonies that are founded, and and uh, Meserado there is is you know, what, what becomes Liberia and, and is started at Monrovia um, and, uh, and is run by the American Colonization Society. But then you have these other, these other regions, uh, Maryland being the next most uh, significant, that are founded by state colonization societies. And the Maryland is, is founded by the Maryland Colonization Society. And over time, they, they merge. Um, but, but they're founded by these different groups with sometimes different perceptions on the motives of colonization. Um, and, uh, so like Maryland, uh, in particular, uh, tr wants to distance itself a little bit from the, uh, Southern pro-slavery wing of, of colonization. Um, and it's hey, actually, and but, Go ahead, uh, I, I should maybe also mention before we move on, because I was talking about the, the core, uh, African-American support for colonization, that that's a small core and that most African-Americans are actually very, very wary of colonization and they, you know, they're not they're not African uh, in their minds. They're, they're American. Uh, the, this idea that they're like returning to their homeland, like they don't really <laughs> feel that way. They're, they've been raised here. They speak English. They're Christians. 
um, and their families and, and social networks are all here, and they're they're worried that if this idea catches on, uh, the white population might start uh, more in, involuntary migration. So like, well, and I think that's a that's a big element there, right there too. It, it, also, the concept that Africans are all Africans and they're all the same. You know, the, the, you know, ship them back to Liberia is not where they're from. You know, my grandparents came from Italy, and it'd be like if I was deported to Denmark because that's <laughs> Europe, and you know, Europe is Europe, and and I'd be completely lost. And and I think that's the same scenario you have here is the solution. But it, I, let me go back to the to the reason behind it. Like you said, there, there's this fear of, of uprisings. There's this fear of issues in the United States, but it, it, how well grounded is this concept? I mean, as a colony itself, Liberia, how, how, how much, how many people are we talking about that eventually are moved over there and, and created, and was it a viable alternative during its time frame? Uh, not, not really. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it, it's possible it could have been maybe more viable than it was, but, but it was, it was never going to be the answer to the problem. Um, the, the whole period uh, before the Civil War, I believe there are 13,000 migrants, uh, like like immigrants from the U.S., and that's including both people who voluntarily move and and people who are freed, but like on condition that they go to Liberia, and so it's like sort of involuntary. Um, there, so like there's 13,000, and there are millions, uh, many millions of, of, I mean, depending on the time period, the number changes, but many millions of slaves. Uh, in, in the United States. So uh, there it's, it's like a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction. Um, it is uh, used. And, and I should mention too, that like a lot of these problems they thought they were avoiding, they, they thought that um, African Americans because of their ancestry would be like immune to the, the diseases and climate of Africa, which is turns out to not really be the case. And it's still pretty, pretty deadly for settlers. Um, because there's a lot of a lot of these areas have like problems with the yellow fever and malaria and things like that, um, and uh, so it's it's dangerous for the settlers and it's remote from uh, military support from you know a supply perspective and things like that, and uh, and so they're very tenuous colonies. Um, I want to take a, a step back here for a second and, and, and talk a little bit more about the creation of the colony and, 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 and the concept itself. Obviously, America is going, undergoing a, a huge issue regarding slavery. You know, it's the 1830s in particular, we're, we're seeing this issue. But at the same time, as we mentioned before, we're seeing this expansionistic element that's taking place in the United States. We had John Beeler on for our first uh, uh, podcast, and he talked about the fact that there was still a, a slave trade going on up until the beginning of the American Civil War with slaves being brought into the United States from Cuba, for example. And so, you know, it, it's just very interesting to me that, that at the same time you're talking about relocating freed slaves and, 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 and a form of abolition in some ways, we're still seeing this active participation and, and expansion of, of slavery. And that's where we come in with the U.S. Navy and, and the role the Navy plays in this. So I was wondering if you can ex, uh, expand on that a little bit and talk about the role that the Navy and some of the key officers during this period played. Yeah, so the Navy is directly involved right from the get-go. Um, the, the first, <coughs> excuse me, uh, the first uh, expedition sent to create, to like to found a colony, uh, is accompanied by um, the USS Cyan, uh, and the the first lieutenant is uh, Matthew Calbraith Perry, who's going to become much more famous later for the opening of Japan, uh, and actually will take an interest from this experience um, and return um, 
to Africa to, to help Liberia. Um, but Ma yeah, Matthew Perry helps uh, choose a site. Um, and later, uh, like the next year, uh, Robert F. Stockton, who's a lieutenant at the time and is uh, probably most famous uh, for uh, being responsible for the USS Princeton disaster where he, he had designed a gun that exploded and killed a lot of important government officials. Um, Robert F. Stockton comes uh, like shortly after Perry's expedition to pick up where he left off and ac actually secure the land. Uh, and he he's supposed to just sort of like transport and, and guide and advise the colonists, um, but takes such an interest in it that he, he actually gets <laughs> it gets in pretty deep in the negotiations and at one point uh, is threatening the uh, African ruler of the area that they're trying to secure the land from. Uh, by, by some accounts, he does this at gunpoint. Um, um, and it's, it's a little bit fuzzy whether this actually occurred, like a, the account of the, him being threatened at gunpoint comes out later um, in sort of a political biography of Stockton. Uh, but, but at a minimum, the reports at the time suggest that he, he threatens to use naval force uh, to punish these, uh, the, the, the day people is the, the group that he's referring to. He, uses, he threatens to use naval force to punish them for misleading them and, and not actually trading the land um, and, and is essentially using the US Navy to intimidate native Africans into ceding territory, even though that wasn't really his goal. And, and the US is, is not technically, this is not technically an American colony, it's run by the American Colonization Society, which is a private organization. I, I think that's a big element there too. I mean, lots of times I've seen even in, in textbooks, Liberia listed as a colony and it's not. The, the role of the naval officers here, I think are really interesting. We had BJ Armstrong on talking about his book, uh, Small Boats and Daring Men and talking about irregular warfare. And, and, you know, in many ways, these Navy commanders are entities onto their own, you know, they're, they're overseas, they're, they're far away, out of communications, on the periphery of the frontier, so to speak. And, and they, they're making actions that in many ways have, have huge diplomatic, let alone military and social and economic implications. And I, I think in the case of Perry and Stockton, you really demonstrate that really well uh, of how, how they're doing that. Because you, at the same time, you're trying to start Liberia as this, col as, as, as this outpost for the American Colonization Society. You also have a, a, an anti-slavery program that's going on too. And, and uh, I'm interested in how the, whether your studies cross-connected those two, the anti-slavery operations along with the colonization society. Uh, anti-slavery meaning anti-slave trade? Anti-slave trade patrol, yeah. the, the West Africa squadrons. Yeah, so the two are very closely tied and it's part of how Liberia is justified. Actually, the federal government's the federal government does fund the founding of, of the American Colonization Society's first settlement um, that would become Monrovia, uh, but they do that out of slave, slave trade suppression funds. Uh, and the justification is that this is going to provide sort of a naval outpost uh, for suppressing the slave trade, and they're going to use the colony as a place to put the, the um, liberated, uh, liberated Africans that are, are found on like rescued from slave ships by the Navy um, because it's, it's almost impossible to send them back home. It's hard to figure out where they're from and to transport them all there. And there's danger that they'll be re-enslaved by, uh, you know, groups along the coast that are actively, in, you know, involved in enslaving people to sell. So it's, it's very hard to get these recaptured Africans home. And so they tend to resettle them in Liberia. Um, 
and uh, and and that justification is then sometimes used by the navy, uh, by naval officers, uh, so that to support their actions in helping Liberia, they're they're helping suppress the slave trade as they help Liberia, you know, found treaties with native tribes that are um, that are involved in the slave trade and things like that. Um, so Liberia recognizes that it needs to be anti-slave trade to to secure U.S. support, and the navy then can can justify. Uh, more easily a partnership with it. And it's also easy for them to justify uh, protecting Liberia because most of the, the citizens of Liberia are American. And so they can, you know, even when they're not really supposed to intervene on behalf of this like sort of neutral independent colony that's not technically American, um, they can be like, well, this missionary is an American citizen and he needs help. So we're going to intervene to protect him um, and, and support Liberia that way. Did your research indicate whether the Africans who were in this area of what is Liberia, what, what did they think about this all of a sudden, this idea of, of establishing, you know, this, this again, it's not a colony, but, but, but this outpost where, 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 you know, basically these Americans are coming in. They're not Africans. They're Americans coming in. who have been generational in America, you know, coming back in and, and literally displacing Africans off their land. Yeah. So it, like, like is the case with these sorts of, uh, settlements all over the world it's it's a little bit of a mixed bag like they, they tend to be <laughs> there's always a ton of friction um early on there are uh africans who are in favor of this because it gives them easy access to to trade relations and and western c commodities and things like that um but but a lot of them are, are wary and have seen what have happened um you know elsewhere um and and then there's friction, of course, because there's different concepts of land ownership and land use and things like that. Um, and they don't necessarily understand uh, how aggressively anti-slave trade the Liberians will be, uh, which for some tribes that relied a lot on the slave trade, uh, you know, as, as part of their their whole trading network, that's disruptive. And then and then it becomes worse because more and more Liberians come and, and keep expanding to more land and they start trying to lock down the role as middlemen with to trade with the African interior um, and the West, and that shuts out a lot of African traders who had been doing this on their own. Um, so there, there's a lot of friction, and it leads to to constant either open open violence and conflict or the threat of it, which makes it especially important for Liberia to either have naval support or, at a minimum, have the appearance of naval support um, because it's just not uh, not large enough to be certain that it can fend off these threats. Wow, that, that description you just had sounded so much like the slave trade with the middlemen coming in and, and, and in many ways and displacing the uh, uh, Africans. I, I mean, it literally sounds like the reverse of that coming in, or an inverse, I should say, <laughs> of that coming in. Uh, and I, I'd have to imagine it, it was a big shock all of a sudden for this area and everything. Why? I, I guess you kind of talked about this a little bit, but the area was chosen basically because I guess it was close to Freetown and Sierra Leone. Is it was that the reason it was chosen, or is there any that's part of it? Uh, that's part of it. It's a little bit closer to Europe and America than it would be if it was further south on the coast. Um, and uh, it was it was also chosen because it was uh, the the site was deemed like healthier and safer than some of the surrounding areas of West Africa. Um, Specifically, I think uh, you know they tended to settle like on capes and things like that, where they were hoping that the the sea breezes and stuff like that would keep away the like miasmas that they were worried were <laughs> carrying this disease. The, the problem is no one knew where these diseases were coming from, so it was hard for them to figure out uh, what was and wasn't suitable. But they wanted areas that were not swampy and, and accessible. 
Um, well, and in, in truth, the area there is is very beautiful. I mean, I've actually been to Liberia, and so that area there is 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 regardless of, of the economic situations that Liberia has been, been plagued with uh, geographically, it is a very nice area. So one of the sub, subtitles you talk about is the public discourse. So I'm wondering if you can talk about that public discourse. I mean, how is this discussed in the United States? What was the, the feeling that, that people had toward this? Was this something that was a small blip and not really big, big attention or, or did it drive a lot of attention? So it has disproportionate attention to its actual solution to this problem, which you were getting at earlier with your question about whether this was really viable. So, so most African Americans did not want to come to like a foreign wilderness area. Um, we say, you know, in their mind it was wilderness. Obviously, there were actually inhabitants there, but like um, most Amer most African Americans didn't didn't find this appealing, and so they didn't really want to participate. So it was never likely to work. Um, but in America, it, it plays an important role in the discourse as sort of one of the moderate solutions of slavery, because the idea of of ending slavery, of gradual emancipation and things like that were a lot more palatable to white Americans if they didn't feel like they were going to have to live with the freed slaves after the fact, because they were worried about racial uh, discord and certainly didn't want to grant equality to them. So it plays an important role for for sort of bringing pro and anti-slavery groups together. And, and instead of, um, you know, in the era when this starts this Jeffersonian era, the idea is that uh, a lot of slave owners felt that slavery was sort of a necessary evil and that we have to have it because it was not a good way of freeing slaves and, and eventually it will go away on its own. And so this is this was addressing that problem of like, as it goes away, what do we do with them? Um, and we wanna, we wanna let these African-Americans eventually be free. So here we can, we can send them away. But, um, so anyway, so early on, it serves that compromise role. Uh, after the 1830s, slavery debate starts to radicalize. You have people like Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison in the North who are, start saying, like, slavery is just getting worse. We need to end it now. Um, and, uh, and this is happening as slavery is becoming more popular in the South. Cotton is becoming... Um, especially... It's, yeah, it's Frederick Douglass on the right there. Um, cotton is becoming especially... Um, uh, valuable in the South and, and exploding as part of the economy. Um, and uh, after like Nat Turner's rebellion, you start seeing Southerners say that actually slavery is like a positive good. It's the natural state for Africans. They're gonna, uh, African-Americans, they're gonna benefit from it. Um, and there's no need to abolish it at all. And that, that, I mean, that spurs this opposition in the North. But it also means you don't really have a need for colonization anymore. Um, so this is like John C. Calhoun in the middle here is a, is a, one of the major proponents of this idea of slavery as a positive good. And so you start seeing people on both pro and anti-slavery sides start attacking colonization in the middle. And the Navy is really important because the naval officers stay in favor of colonization and they sort of uh, build up and legitimize this movement as the political extremes are turning on it and it's losing popularity. And so they sort of keep the compromise solution um, and therefore the possibility that this isn't, isn't an irreconcilable difference between Americans. They keep that, that middle ground alive. Is there a concept among the naval officers that, you know, one of the reasons I would think that the naval officers would want this idea to, to, to grow and blossom is, go, goes to the title of your book. If, if Liberia becomes a model republic like the United States, then then the anti-slavery patrols and, and, and issues can be taken over by an African nation and they can prevent that influx of slavery, which is still still an issue in the 
1830s, 40s, and even in the 50s, even up to the eve of the American Civil War, and that they can shift that onus over to them and they could be relieved of that issue. I, I mean, I, I've, read, I've read narratives of, of, of naval officers on, on the African patrol, and it's not the glorious yeah. <laughs> patrol that they want. No, I don't think anyone's sitting there going, hey, we're assigned to the African patrol. It's like, oh, yes, you know, that's where I want to be, yeah. not the med. Well, only, only Matthew Perry is he's the only one I've found who, who after his first expedition, wants to go back because he's so in favor of supporting Liberia. Uh, and yeah, and some of it is that they think like they don't like the patrol and they think that Liberia is going to, uh, is going to end the slave trade and they won't necessarily need it anymore. Um, but it's also, it's, it's interesting. Liberia fits very neatly into their imperial vision. Like these naval officers want, uh, you know, to expand American commerce and Christianity and things like that. Um, and, Liberia to them, Africa in general, is a place that that isn't suitable for actual um, settlement by white Americans. Uh, like it, it's that 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 level of of uh, of you know the spread of American culture it can't really happen because they think that you know it's an unsuitable climate and that all the white Americans are going to die. So actually, it's not threatening in the same way that a black society would normally be it's not as threatening to have this happening in africa removed from america and in a place where where white americans can't go anyways um and they seem to like it too because they're uh you know they're stationed abroad they're in this foreign land and uh dealing sometimes with uh with native africans who are a foreign people with different religion and values and culture and language um, and in in that world, like Liberia feels kind of like home. They're they're when they stop in Liberia, they're meeting other Americans, and sometimes they know them from their their life back in the states. And so they they like seem to develop an affinity for it that way. And I've found accounts of officers meeting people like from their neighborhoods. Um, you have up here a picture of uh, of John Russworm on the left, who uh, eventually becomes the the governor of Liberia, uh, the first, uh, I believe, or sorry, the governor of Maryland in Liberia, I think the first African-American governor of Maryland in Liberia. And uh, one one naval officer actually went to college with him for a little while and, and sort of knew him there and they reconnect uh, while he's off the coast of Africa. Um, so uh, yeah, it's, it, it, officers find it easy to support this sort of imperial vision uh, for that in that sense. I would also imagine for the Navy, this is an opportunity to establish a, a base overseas to, to see, you know, I mean, we're, we're seeing the British do this with, with Singapore and South Africa and a few other places. And, you know, as, as technology begins to change, especially as the introduction of steam starts coming in, you're going to need coaling bases and, and areas around that. That, that does seem to be a, an opportunity now for them to, to take a look at. So I can understand even, even though Liberia may not be the ideal place in the world, it still gives them something that they, they're not dependent on a foreign power for like a Britain or a France or a Spain in some ways. And so to well, me, they actually, they still use, uh, the, I think they're the main base. There's a couple different over time. There, there are a couple different Naval bases that they use for the slave patrol. And actually I think Liberia is always sort of secondary to other foreign ports in the region. Um, so I, I, and I couldn't tell you exactly why uh, I'm assuming it's a location thing, but they, they do, I mean, they use Liberia as a naval base, but it never becomes, I think, what people envisioned, which was sort of the hub, uh, the main hub for the, the Africa squadron. I want to take a step back for a second and talk a little bit about the, the selection of the topic, why, why you chose specifically this topic, very unique topic, obviously, it, it, it's a very uh, niche topic which most historians love to do and it's always a good one to pick a topic that is uh, 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 unique and there's not a lot of people writing about it so uh, why, why embark on this topic specifically Roger? 
Well, so uh, like I said with the dissertation, it, it seemed like sort of an important question of, or like an important area where the decisions made by these naval officers uh, would reflect their beliefs about slavery and race um, and would impact American foreign policy and like the public discourse. Um, and we haven't talked a lot about how they Im influence public discourse. Maybe we can come back to that. But, um, but in particular, um, the idea was like I was interested in finding areas where officers' agency and autonomy allowed the culture of the officer corps to steer the nations in its debate towards slavery. And that's, that's happening pretty clearly in Liberia. I mean, uh, the, the officers you can see in their private lives, uh, actually beyond their capacity as naval officers go out of their way to support Liberia, even when it's not in their orders. Um, and even, even when they're not on duty, Robert Stockton is, who's a, you know, a great example comes back and actually becomes the president of the New Jersey colonization society. Um, and other officers, uh, write letters and, you know, to colonization societies in support of them and, and attend their meetings and things like that. Um, some of them write books, um, in favor of Liberian colonization and, and portraying this as a success. So, uh, it, it really seemed like it needed to be talked about if we're talking about the ways that naval officers are shaping American foreign policy and, and shaping America's relationship with slavery. So let's talk a little more about that this course. I mean, were they successful in really modifying? Were the Navy able to get in there? Navy's always looking to get into the public discourse in many ways. Uh, they always seem to be on the periphery and the outside. And, and so w were they taking advantage of the subject? Because, you know, this is such a, 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 hot button issue, obviously, in the 1840s and 1850s going forward. And, and so were they able to get into the mainstream? Yeah, um, so they don't, uh, it, it's not clear to me that like they single-handedly do it, but they, they do definitely penetrate uh, discourse in a lot of ways. I mean, one, one of the books that I, I'm mentioning, you know, one of, the, of an officer who's in the Africa Squadron and comes back and uh, writes about it, one of them is a um, the Journal of an African Cruiser by Horatio Bridge. Um, and it actually is is edited uh, and and basically published by Nathaniel Hawthorne. So you have like a very powerful literary name promoting this book, and and that makes it very popular. And and a big chunk of it is promoting uh, Liberia, um, and and portraying it positively. And actually, Bridge is the officer that I mentioned a few minutes ago who realized he was friends with with Russ Worm from college and and struck up that friendship. Um, so he, he's a good example of it. You can see, uh, you know, Stockton becomes a political figure. He eventually becomes a senator. Um, and you can see in his speeches and in his discourse, he keeps promoting this idea and, and other people pick it up in the debates. And then if you look at things like congressional debates, people who support colonization will bring up officers' testimony and say, like, here's, here's like a, a third party uh, credible account from these honorable naval officers that are explaining that Liberia is actually a success and we should continue supporting it. So they definitely influence it. And it's, it's hard to, to gauge if, if like, would it have stayed alive if the officers weren't able to support it as much or didn't, didn't go out of their way to support it. Uh, maybe it would have limped along, but, but they're certainly helping keep it a little bit more vibrant than it would have been otherwise. Let's talk about source material for this. So obviously you're looking at a topic, 19th century, early 19th century. Where was your main uh, uh, source material and, and what have you found and what, what haven't you found that you wish you would have found? <laughs> so the, my favorite sources have been the, the books. There's, you know, the Journal of an African Cruiser, uh, Andrew uh, Hull Foote, 
uh, publishes another book uh, called Africa and the American the Africa and the American Flag, which is also uh, pretty popular. Um, and there's like other, there's a couple other books. And my, one of my favorites is there's a, actually a children's book called um, The uh, Gray African Parrot. Um, and um, it, it like, the, the title of my paper actually comes from it. And it's not really about Liberia, but the ship like makes a trip to Liberia. And, uh, and the, the author's like, oh, Liberia is, you know, a free republic like our own. It's still, so even for this, this book for like children, that this naval officer is is oddly writing. He's he's promoting Liberia, um, so I, I really like those sources most. Uh, their their accounts can be found in a lot of colonization society journals, um, and you can get a sense of their support that way. And those journals would al also often report on their speeches and things like that. So, uh, not too hard to see where they are in the discourse. Um, I've also tried to use a lot of their reports to Washington, and when I'm able, their like private letters and journals and things like that to gauge uh, how they feel about about these issues um, candidly and uh, like what they are reporting actually happens. Um, as far as what I have been able to find, um, it's it's been trickier than I thought to find a lot of like journals and and letters home uh from like naval commanders off the coast of africa there there are that, that have the kinds of things that i'm interested in like their reflections on it there are a number um but i'm, I'm always looking for more <laughs> and uh and it's uh specifically i need a lot because i'm trying to gauge the difference between northern and southern officers and as far as i've been able to tell they seem to be fairly similar like the the southerners tend to be like a little bit more racist but but mostly they they even southern officers um tend to support it but i i i want to gauge that a little bit better and how the uh the sectional divide i'm also trying to uh gauge the divide between ages so i'm interested in how um as time goes on and as the issue becomes more radicalized how younger officers feel about this compared to the older officers cuz cuz the older officers are as far as I can tell, all in favor of colonization. And I've found a little bit more skepticism in the younger officers. And so more sources from younger officers in Africa with their reflections on Liberia, I think would help really expand uh, expand my ability to draw those conclusions. Yeah, there's this concept that the uh, naval officers were much more nationalistic than, than regionally focused as potentially army officers were, yet you still have officers that go south when the when the civil war happens moray is one of the classic examples of that along with buchanan and a few others and so i, I think that's a, an interesting have you been able to find papers on the american colonization society or do they have theirs in the central depository anywhere uh, yes they are at the library of congress uh, mostly and um the maryland colonization society also has like a huge trove of documents at the maryland historical society so that that is uh, a useful place uh, to look as well they they have like a lot of good reports that, that describe what the what the navy is doing uh for them and and show the liberian approach to naval intervention which is mostly like they you know they're going out of their way to encourage it and make the officers feel welcome and to cooperate with the navy as much as possible because they they really want this constant american naval presence if only to create the impression that they have american naval backing so I had mentioned before, and I want to get your opinion on it. Again, this seems to me very akin to the how the U.S. deals with 
populations it's not familiar with. Again, I go back to that Trail of Tears idea where, you know, our solution to Native Americans in the United States is to, we'll ship them to Oklahoma because that's out of the way. No one will go there. Sorry, Sooners. Uh, you know, it, it just, it, it, it's that way. And, and to me, this seems like a very similar option. Obviously, it, it's not a Trail of Tears in comparison, we're not losing thousands on on it going across, but perhaps like a reservation type area type deal. Is, is that something that you think is, is is prevalent across American society at this time? Again, you're dealing with a population that's not like us. And, and you know, we're, we're dealing right now in this country with issues latent from that, with, with racism and, 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 and how we look at how Americans look at other groups that don't look like them. So is that a theme that you think is running through here at the same time? Yeah, um, it's worth, you know, it's important to note that the voluntation, that the migration is is mostly voluntary, so which is a big difference between this and the Trail of Tears. So especially for Northerners, uh, they're, they're, the settlers are usually choosing this. They're saying that we're not going to receive equality here, and we think we might be able to have opportunities there that wouldn't exist for us here. Uh, that's less so um, for southern freed slaves where sometimes they, they don't have a lot of options and so it is a lot more like the trail of tears and that like it's not necessarily clear that there's anywhere else they can go to or that they can afford to and, and having um you know a trip supported by the american colonization society um to liberia can seem like the more attractive option um given very few other options so in that sense yes um and uh, the argument has been made, this is essentially like an early form of, of separate but equal, um, like a separate but equal solution to this, this problem where the idea is American, white Americans can deal with these racial differences by just like <clears throat> segregating and, uh, <clears throat> and that, will, that will prevent racial issues, which of course does not work well. <laughs> Is the creation of, of the American Colonization Society, this concept of establishing a foothold in Liberia, do you think this hinders or helps when it comes, for example, to Reconstruction uh, in the Civil War? You know, the idea that, okay, you know, we, we can't live together, so we're going to establish this, this separate entity where free African Americans can live, but now all of a sudden, okay, now everybody's free, thanks to the 13th Amendment, Abraham Lincoln, we have this. Now, I, I mean, does the does this cause a little bit, again, it goes back to separate but equal, you're just talking about, can we look at, the, at what happens here in Liberia and, and follow a causality through the period of reconstruction? As in, does colonization uh, shape reconstruction solutions? Well, uh, you know, if, if the concept is, well, we can't live together as, as you know, free African Americans and whites, and now all of a sudden you have liberation, you have, you have the 13th Amendment, now all of a sudden, you know, it, did perhaps the idea of Liberia hinder the ability to reconstruct the United States with the concept? Because I remember there's always that famous Lincoln quote that he talks about that, that, that colonization was a good idea because he can foresee us living together. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, there, to some extent, I think, uh, but it, you know, it's worth noting that uh, a lot of what happens in especially the, the, like the radical stage of reconstruction is is sort of a reaction in some ways to Liberia having failed, like the Liberian experiment having failed in, in the eyes of some of these people. Like it, it didn't solve slavery. African-Americans haven't chosen to immigrate. And the radical Republicans who take over Congress are much more interested in, like, like these are, you know, rooted in the abolitionists who had been opposed to colonization to begin with. And so their their initial 
premise is this idea of like, well, we need to actually create an integrated society. Um, but certainly there are a lot of moderates who I think had, had probably still envisioned that if slavery were to end, um, like they, they hadn't really understood that this was going to mean, uh, you know, having to live side by side as, as equals um, with African-Americans. And the colonization society then, like it, it lives on and, and people continue to immigrate um, for uh, se several more years at least. And I think the, the society actually makes it into the 20th century, um, even though it's, you know, it stops actually governing the colonies and eventually is like not really playing a major role in immigration and is just sort of supporting uh, Liberia in other ways. Um, so the, the idea doesn't go away and there are new colonization ideas that, that start emerging uh, during and, and after the Civil War. Um, so in that sense, it, it does keep the separate but equal vision alive, um, even though I would say it isn't, you know, it's, it's the opposite in many ways of what actually happens in the early stages of, of in the radical stages of Reconstruction. I think it's a really interesting concept, and, and I'm glad you explained that, because I, I, I do think, as you mentioned, the, the concept that now, you know, we have to come up with a solution internal to the United States, that we can't, we can't export our issue. This has to be handled here. And, and perhaps Liberia as, as not a failure, but, but, but as, a, as showing the challenges to create, to do this, really convinces the United States, okay, we got to solve this solution internally and, and come up with a solution. Uh, Roger, what, what's next for you? What do you got uh, coming up? Obviously, finishing the dissertation is always the big thing. What, what, what's the, the plan that you have going forward for that? Yeah, so the, the next chapter is uh, going to be uh, on the slave trade suppression, like the Navy's doing. So it's going to be closely tied to this research um, and, and looking at, at how officers uh, made decisions about suppressing the slave trade and how they treated the uh, recaptured Africans when they, uh, you know, liberated slave ships. Um, and, uh, and then I have, you know, some changes to the other chapters, but hopefully within the end of the year or so, I'll, uh, I'll finish the dissertation and, uh, get to move on with my life. So uh, I always love to ask grad students this question is like, knowing what you know now, before you went into your, your, your dissertation and, and, and graduate, what, what would you tell yourself a, a few years ago, or what would you tell future grad students going forward? Don't, don't do it. <laughs> uh, certainly I would have told myself to be done before like a pandemic came and, and basically killed the job market. So that's fun. But um, hey, there may be openings. You never know. You never, you never, never know come the fall when schools reopen. This is true. Um, so yeah, ho hopefully, yeah, I probably would have advised myself a little bit differently on, on the timeline, but also, yeah, like um, more practical advice would have been to take, uh, keep things, focused and narrow like I feel like in, in a lot of ways this project is has been very large in scope and dealt with many different types of naval policy which each have their own each of them could could easily be their own book and so um, I think uh, the ability to focus in is 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 nice and uh, trying to do that in this has been uh, you know has, has always been the struggle of balancing like detail and and, uh, and breadth so yeah, I, w I would maybe tell myself to do that. I, I always tell grad students, remember, you're doctoring history, so don't try to doctor too much. <laughs> it, it, it's a lot to do. And then the other thing always is, is don't get it right. Just write it, you know, and, 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 and just get it out there because, you know, it, it's not going to be the magnum opus. It's not going to be our last work ever. It's a starting point for many historians, and I think it's always important. To, to be able to do that. So I, I, I want to go back to just one other question and, and ask you, because we, we, we brought this up. Uh, you know, Liberia today is, is not seen as a very successful 
nation in many ways. And matter of fact, I, I would always argue that Liberia was seen as, as a kind of a, a useful tool post-World War II. We establish a, a ship registry out of them because it's, it's, it's easy, it's cheap. Uh, I was off Liberia in the 90s when, when, when a lot of uh, humanitarian issues were, were going in. Uh, do you think the, the establishment of the colonization society has hindered the development? I know this is a little outside your scope and everything, but, but I was wondering if, if you think, you know, because Liberia did exist as a, you know, when, when imperialism happens in Africa, there, there are two kind of entities that exist. It's Ethiopia on the east side and Liberia on the west side. Does, does Liberia, you know, hinder the development, excuse me, the American Colonization Society hinder that development of that nation, or was it a positive that allowed it to be an independent state for so long? Yeah, um, so certainly, uh, and I can't speak as, as much to their continued role um, after the Civil War, but certainly before the Civil War, their, the kind of government that they were promoting and the kind of society that they were promoting, which was based on Westerners, based on African Americans, um, and you know, smaller numbers of other settlers uh, coming to Liberia was not ever going to be sustainable long term. It was always going to have similar problems to the tensions between um, white Americans and Native Americans. Um, and so this, yeah, th this class of uh, American immigrant to Liberia, um, like, is the foundation for the Americo Liberians who who ruled Liberia for a long time. Um, to the exclusion of the actual like native African populations who outnumbered them by a, a large margin. And so it, it created this in, in unequal society that I think ultimately destabilized Liberia um, and maybe led to some of its political turmoil. That being said, it's hard to imagine any other uh, like model of government in the era in which the colony was created. Like it's, it to me is just inconceivable to imagine the American colonization society creating like a, a blended diverse multi-ethnic society like that just wasn't in the the realm of of like political consideration for these people uh for any even the most progressive people in america were not going to have uh like equal african participation in society or or frankly dominant african participation in society so um I think we see in Liberia today that influence, like you said, of the American influence. I mean, just simply the flag and, and Monrovia being the capital. And I, I think that has been an issue in, in the development of Liberia. It's in many ways, you know, imperialism was easy because you can cut imperialism. The American colonization society is a little different because it's not imperialism. It, it, it's trying to establish a society. And I think the Liberians have had an issue with, with doing that. So I think it creates a very unique environment there in West Africa that, that continues on to today. I want to thank our guest, Roger Bailey, for joining us for our NASO video podcast. If you liked our video and podcast, be sure to click like on YouTube or give it five stars on the podcast provider. Please subscribe to our channel to receive updates as we continue to interview up-and-coming maritime historians like Roger. You can follow NASO on Facebook or on Twitter at NASO underscore history. The best way to follow NASO is to become a member. As such, you receive our newsletter, our quarterly journal, Northern Mariner, which we hope to see an article from Roger Bailey in very soon. Uh, we publish jointly with the Canadian Nautical Research Society. Go to www.naso.org and click on membership to join. Until our next talk, keep sailing.